At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, August 14th, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein, and I'm excited to start this week with you. It's a new week, and that means new opportunities and opportunities to maybe trim some of your positions, to pick up different positions, uh, and most importantly, opportunity to just learn more and gather knowledge uh, to integrate into your investment process. And that's what we are here to help you with. There's a lot of headlines that are always flying about and it's easy to get caught up in, in the noise. And our job is to filter out the noise and give you the signals that matter. They may not matter today, but they may matter months from now or even years from now. But we want to highlight what's important so that you can make smart decisions with your money today and into the future. This isn't about just getting that stock idea and making a, a purchase. It's about having a plan, having a strategy that aligns with today's world. And so on this Invest Talk podcast, we'll be doing we'll be doing our best to try to keep you focused on the shades of gray that are the markets. No investment is without its risks or its rewards. And it's about balancing that and knowing how dark of a gray or light of a gray uh, that really is. And it's easy to it's, it's in our nature where we're beings that pick, uh, pick tribes. We're tribal in nature. And so we try to come down on a, uh, a topic very definitively when there's a lot of nuance typically. And that's what investing is. There's a lot of nuance and you have to wade through the nuance and make sure that it aligns with your needs, your goals, and your risk tolerance levels. So my job is to give you useful data and unbiased perspective that I've developed with over 20 years of investment experience. So you play an important role here in this hour, and that's to ask your questions. I can talk about whatever's on my mind, but most importantly, this show is for you. It's about strengthening your knowledge base and your portfolio ultimately. So give us a call. The Invest Talk phone lines are open. They never close. It's 888 chart Now, my main focus point today looks in the story behind this question. How do banks price mortgages and when rates might come down? Rates on the mortgage market continue to kind of grind higher. But is that always going to be the case? Obviously not. But what to look for to 
understand when that might shift. Also, I want to touch on a few other topics. One is in regards to green power and the fact that it's getting pricier. Despite a lot of money going into that space, a lot of subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act, there are some other trends that governments can't really resolve. And in some ways, government's actually making it a bit harder. So we're going to break down why that is, why green energy is becoming more expensive. Also, earnings season. We are getting to the end of earnings season. We're going to look at what earnings have come in at after roughly 90% of the S&P has announced and how the market is reacting to beats as well as misses. And that does give a bit of color to, to the market. You know, if uh, the market is reacting well to beats, then there's probably nice liquidity still flowing into the markets and vice versa. So what does the data tell us? So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, oil companies. They have a nice windfall with the Ukraine war and high energy prices that's come down, but still at elevated levels compared to we were just uh, pre-pandemic. And the question is, how are they balancing stock buybacks, dividends, as well as CapEx for new production and pressure from governments as well? So we're going to look at that story. We're also get to, going to get to some voice bank questions. One is on advanced micro devices as well as dividends and taxes. And we, if we have time, we have an iTunes review question to get to as well. Now, my perspective day looks at the topic of U.S. national debt and puts the subject of debt that is lending and borrowing against the backdrop, backdrop of the practice of implementing implemented over many centuries. So of all this planned for this episode of Invest Talk, and of course, your live calls as well at 888 chart Now let's take a quick look at the market today. It was a roughly flat day. You had small caps up a tad, same with mid caps. Large caps did the best, about half a percent. That was really in the back of earnings from NVIDIA. That was up 7% today. Still well below its highs for the summer, but uh, it certainly bounced on uh, on that news. You had some news out of uh, U.S. Steel and Cleveland Cliffs, potential buyout or merger there. But you also had some stocks down pretty big. AMC Theaters down 35%. Hawaiian Electric, a very interesting one. It might be the next PG&E. Remember, we had the wildfires here in California that had a, a big problem uh, and liability overhanging uh, PG&E. You might see that here with Hawaiian Electric as well and the devastating uh, Maui wildfire in Lahaina. So this is something uh, to watch, and those are always kind of those left field type of risks. But once again, you always have to be aware of these risks in whatever you're looking at, what are those low probability events, but they could be catastrophic. And obviously you're seeing that with Hawaiian energy at the moment. So pretty interesting story, sad story, but uh, interesting uh, story for the markets and how uh, markets will, will react. Uh, what else? I think that was, that was pretty much it. The dollar was stronger. So commodity prices were under pressure a bit. You had the 10-year yield that was up about one basis point. And the big question is, is the 10-year going to break out or come back down? We do have Jackson Hole coming up later this month where all the central bankers get together and uh, there'll be a speech. 
by Jerome Powell, and that will be a market mover as well. Now we're heading into a break, so let me tell you about the video feature we are producing. It's called the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. It's free and it's over on YouTube. It's our second episode. It's on the energy sector, and we highlight the pitfalls as well as potential opportunities. But you have to be informed, and that's what we try to help you do over there on that new episode. So head over to the YouTube channel, check out the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. And now my phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 chart Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And, and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Every InvestTalk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, uh, this message is for Justin. Uh, this is Stephen Johnson calling from Layton, California. And I'm calling about an energy stock, PR, Permian Resources. I did a screen, and this these guys' fundamentals are better than a lot of the big cap gas and energy companies. And I was just wondering if this company has a lot more room to run. Justin, can't wait for your answer. Loving what you guys are doing. I'm soaking up all this knowledge like a sponge. Keep putting it out there. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, looking at Permian Resources. Thank you for the kind words as well. Glad you're getting a lot out of the show. And this is Permian Resources. PR is the symbol it is on the smaller side of the oil and gas names. It's a it's a EMP company, mainly focused in the Permian Basin, as you would imagine, Permian Resources, and does have strong growth. Permian Basin is one of the strongest growth areas within the U.S. when it comes to to shale. It's surpassed uh, many other regions in the country. And so it's not shocking to see that one that's focused in the Permian is growing better than, than others. And you can see that with the technicals, the relative strength is 94, very strong, near a 52-week high. Modest debt levels, which is good. And not a, not a big dividend payer, which I'm fine with. That's not a big issue. They do have uh, – actually, I'm sorry. They do have a good amount of debt now that I look at it compared to their market cap. About two to one debt to equity ratio. It's a little high. Uh, I like to see ones that have a little bit less debt, but obviously they're taking that cash flow and really investing it into their business and their growth. And as you've seen in the past, that can cut both ways. If energy prices go up, they will be a big benefactor of that. And so far, because energy prices have stayed relatively buoyant, they've been able to 
drill at a profitable level. And as long as oil is $80, $90 a barrel, hey, shale production, shale R&D and, and CapEx is going to likely pay off. And that's what you're seeing here. So this would be a growth name within the space and going to be much more volatile both ways. So that's what you have to think about here. Do you want a highly volatile oil name that certainly is going to have a much bigger upside than your large cap Exxon and Chevrons of the world that are much more diversified, less levered, etc.? Or do you want a pure play, really focused on the Permian, really focused on shale, and they will have a lot of operating leverage if oil prices continue to go up? I like it. I like it. I'd rather take a little more risk if you have the willingness to take that. And I like the performance overall. All right. Let's uh, head over to our first listener question, uh, live question. And he's in Dave in Ohio looking at Hawaiian Energy. Hi, Justin. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, I, uh, I own um, HE Hawaiian mm-hmm. Electric, and uh, it took – at one point it was down about uh, 40% today due to the fires. Just get your thoughts, and um, if you think this is going to rebound, and uh, if I should stick with it or is it time to sell it? Well, I, I frankly haven't looked deeply into the Hawaiian laws in regards to their potential liability. I know here in California, PG&E had a, a lot of potential liability and they they averted bankruptcy, but they certainly were on the hook for a, a lot of liabilities that you could, if you watch, look at PG&E stock, it still has not uh, recovered uh, from those wildfires a few years back and the amount of damage that, that it created. If you look at PCG, those fires started in, what was that, 2018, 2017? And that was when it was around $70 per share. PG&E is still at 17, 17, uh, five years later, six years later. So I, once again, I don't know what the laws are in Hawaii. It does look like there's a class action lawsuit. It does look like there's potential for uh, Hawaiian Electric maybe not – shutting down certain power lines when there were warnings of, of high winds, etc. How this plays out, it's hard to know. What I do know is it's going to take a long time. This is not, this is very unlikely to bounce back anytime soon. And usually what these companies do because of this, they probably will suspend their dividend as well. So do you want to wait through that? Probably not. Frankly, I would just probably move on because this is going to be a multi-year probably issue. And the damages, I think, uh, of Lahaina are probably much much more drastic when you, than you saw here uh, in California. Um, so I would probably just move on. Uh, I just see too many headwinds uh, unless you don't feel like these lawsuits have merit and that the Hawaiian laws aren't going to put them on the hook. I personally have not looked into that uh, myself. But that's what you're going to have to figure out. All right. Thanks for the call, Dave. Now we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888 chart
The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today looks into the story behind this question. How do banks price mortgages and when might rates go down? Now, there are many factors that go into the prevailing mortgage rate, and they vary by bank. Some banks are more aggressive when it comes to their mortgage pricing. Others, not so. All depends on their willingness to you know, sp- basically spend part of their balance sheet. That's what banks are doing when they're making lending decisions. They're, they have only so much balance sheet capacity, and that's Sometimes they spend it more on uh, consumer and industrial loans, or sorry, uh, commercial and industrial loans, others more directly towards consumers, credit cards, et cetera. Others are focused more on mortgages. So it does depend on which bank you're talking about. But the main factors that they focus on are credit scores, obviously the size of the loan compared to the property value, the bigger the, the value of the property, the more down payment they, they typically want. And then there's the prevailing interest rates in the economy. And most people think that it has to do with Fed action. And it does to a degree, but they do not directly impact mortgage rates. It's indirectly. Okay. Why? Because the Fed, it impacts the, what they call the Fed funds rate. But because there is, there, there are, excuse me, there are, mortgage-backed securities on the Fed's balance sheet, whether they are buying mortgage-backed securities or selling mortgage-backed securities, like they are now, QT, quantitative tightening, they're letting a lot of their mortgages roll off when they mature uh, or or directly selling them. So that is certainly a factor uh, for mortgage rates and the spread above 10-year treasuries. And that's usually the, the reference rate. Why is that? Why do banks use the 10-year treasury as a proxy for mortgage rates more than the Fed funds rate? Well, it's because 10-year treasuries are long-duration assets. 10 years, that's fairly long, definitely the long end of, I would call intermediate, but pretty long. And so are mortgages. Most mortgages, especially in a rising rate environment, they stay in place for many, many years. And so it's more appropriate to price them off of 10-year treasuries than the Fed funds rate. Now, there are other dynamics in play. Obviously, the supply of credit in the economy. How do they have a lot of other banks they're competing with? If everybody's giving out mortgages, then you have to be more competitive. Otherwise, your volume is not going to go up. You're going to get beat out by other banks. Then there's demand for credit. How many people want to take out a mortgage? Right now, obviously, not that many. And in this environment, kind of both are down. Supply of credit is down and the demand for credit is down, at least within the mortgage industry, because of lack of transactions, lack of inventory in the market. Now, mortgage rates continue to kind of grind. We're up in that 7 7.5% range. 
And the big question for a lot of people is when will that come down? And the answer is probably not soon. Now, what's interesting here is you could see the Fed embark on a cutting cycle, maybe next year at some point. It's probably likely. But the big question is not how will that impact short-term rates. It's about that tenure. Remember, the tenure right now is well below. We have an inverted yield curve, well below short-term mortgage rates. And so I could easily see an environment where Fed's cutting rates on the short end, the long end, doesn't budge much, doesn't drop that dramatically, especially if the market's pricing in elevated inflation going forward, because that is the most important part of the longer dated parts of the yield curve, is what will inflation look like years out? That's the death kneel of the bond market. Okay, so I don't think mortgage rates are going down dramatically anytime soon. Almost that 3% mortgage, you can forget about that. It's probably never happening in the next decade or two. Come back to pull to five, certainly possible. That's probably not for another 12 months or more. All right, now when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to the question quickly. M Jonesy4014 says, Let me ask about symbol Fortinet. I'm wondering if the recent pullback presents an opportunity to jump in. I have the company on my watch list for some time. Really like the area of business as long long term hold, five to ten years. Would you consider it a good time to start a position? And I would answer, this is not a bad time. It's pulled back. It's still a little elevated in its in its valuation, I still think it's a little expensive, but much better than it was before. Now, the issue is their earnings were solid, but their guidance going forward was a little weak. So what I would like to see is this regain its footing on a technical basis. It's now below its 200-day moving average, and it's kind of been there for over a week now, and this would be called bearish consolidation. So I would need to see this back above the 50-day moving average for me to get excited about it. It's certainly much cheaper than it was a few weeks ago when it was around 80, now it's at $60 per share. Our fair value is closer to the 50 range. So much, much better, um, but I would still be patient on it. Uh, around 50, that's where I'd think about picking it up. All right. Now, the next Invest Talk, we look into the story behind this question. Will the 4% rule for retirement withdrawals leave you broke? That story is for tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use. 
and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go up to Berkeley and talk with Bill. And you have a question. Uh, yeah, what is your question, Bill? It's actually more of a comment. So okay. I was reading a white paper by Charlie Munger the other mm-hmm. day. So Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's uh, partner mm-hmm. and one of the richest men in the world. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this paper uh, and said a, had a couple of points. Uh, he said you should not have a diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and his reasoning there was, now a company like yours could, of course, do that. But he felt an individual really couldn't keep adequate track if they had a hundred stocks or more. Mm -hmm. And your job is to really watch the stocks that you have. Mm -hmm. The other thing he said was, you can't get the big bumps. You can't get the real rich plays when you have that many stocks, because some are going to be dragging others down. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the 10 stocks or whatever it is that they have, billions of dollars in, you know, they're really high-performing stocks. And not everybody can can do that. But I'm just wondering uh, what you think of that philosophy. I definitely agree with it to, to a degree. I, I see very often many people owning 60, 70, 80, 100 different positions. And you're right, it is impossible, especially for an individual, to keep an eye on, on that and really understand the, all the businesses that they own. And so right. it, now when it comes to the statistics around diversification, you only need about 25 to 30 different names to be well diversified. So to us, that's kind of what we stay in for most of our portfolios. Uh, obviously, we have a lot of tools that allow us to kind of watch them all and keep them uh, keep uh, on top. But I, I don't think any individual right. should have more than that, 30, 35-ish at max. Uh, now, if you're yeah. buying a fund or anything like that and you're just kind of setting it, forget it, that, that's something different. But what he's talking about is obviously individual names. And it is important to be able to keep an eye on them, understand the catalyst that could drive each one of them higher or lower and stay on top of the business uh, climate, economic climate, et cetera. What was that? Uh, pardon me. Uh, what, do, what do you think about his comment about how you get the best performance with a, uh, a smaller portfolio, less diversified? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's some truth to that. Once again, it's smaller isn't always better, but it can be better 
if you are more concentrated in names that you really understand and you're, you're focused on. Doesn't mean you can't right. do well with a 30 position portfolio, but it is very difficult to do very well with a 100 position portfolio, for example, because just too spread out and not one individual name is going to make a huge impact on the portfolio overall. So less is, is more, um, but too few is also uh, too risky because if you have 10% of your portfolio in one position and you're wrong, which everybody's wrong, guess what? Charlie Munger's been wrong. Warren Buffett's been wrong. They've all been wrong. They've had, had bad positions uh, and, and big losses in, in certain parts of the market. It happens. Um, and so there's definitely a risk versus reward there that you have to balance out. But uh, I do see is the biggest mistake is having far too many positions by the, for the average individual. Thanks for the call, Bill. Let's go to Logan in Arkansas looking at SBAC. Uh, how's it going, Justin? Um, yeah, I was uh, wanting to see if you had a entry point into SBAC. Um, an area of concern for me is that it has negative retained earnings, and through my screening, I haven't really came across something that interests me that had retained earnings. So I wanted to see how you would weigh how you would uh, weigh that. All right. Well, this is SBA Communications, and it is a real estate investment trust. And so many real estate investment trusts do not have retained earnings because they have to pay out 90% of their income as earnings, the pass-through entity. So I wouldn't really pay too much attention to that retained earnings. It's just a, a product of, of being a REIT. Now, SBA Communications has been in a downtrend. This is kind of one of those growthier REITs trading at high multiples. Now, what do they do? They operate 40,000 cell phone towers throughout the United States or North America, South America, and Africa. So what it does is it leases tower space to the wireless service providers. And those service providers pay rent to SBA communications. <clears throat> and it's been thought for a while that this was a fantastic business. And it was just going to continue to grow and grow and grow because the demand for cell tower coverage will, will, will continue to grow. And to, degree, to some degree, that's certainly correct. But in a higher interest environment, that tends to weigh on REITs and high multiple names. And so this one has come down from nearly $400 per share in late 2021. Now we're at $231 per share, only yielding about 1.5%. Now, is it cheap enough is the big question. And I'm going to say... No, I don't think it is. It growth has certainly slowed. Revenue growth last quarter only four percent. A year ago, it was in the low teens. So you're already you're seeing slowdown in growth. You're seeing uh, higher interest rates, thus multiple contraction. And I think this needs to go lower. The technicals remain poor, um, but I wouldn't pay too much attention uh, to that retained earnings once again because it is a REIT. Now, where would I pick it up? Let me give you a price here. $200 per share. Now it's at 230. Okay. I think that's where some good support is. Great support is down around 175. So you're getting there. You're certainly getting there. Um, but it's not quite there yet for me because higher interest rates and still at an elevated multiple. Thanks for the call. Now, my perspective today looks in the topic of the U.S. national debt, the U.S. national debt. And we're going to look back kind of Many centuries, 
you know, national debt and, and borrowing goes back a long period of time. We're not the first country to borrow a bunch of money and we won't be the last. I guarantee you that. And throughout the ages, debt has taken different forms and there's even debt going back to or evidence of uh, debt going back to ancient Samaria, 3000 BC, if not earlier. Now, Sumerians have been understood as a very distinct people speaking a common language and occupying the plains of southern Mesopotamia, which today is modern day Iraq, approximately 3500 to 2000 BC. And you can jump ahead to the Roman era and the Roman Empire had a ton of debt. And the, the, the interest rates back then, based on records, ranged typically between 4 and 12%, but they did jump higher at certain periods up to 24 48%, depending on who was borrowing. Now, most of the borrowing back then was between people, between individuals, between harvest seasons, you know, saying, hey, I, I need to borrow money and we're going to have a harvest in six months. I need to borrow money to feed my family, but I'll pay you back once harvest happens. So that was most of the debt was in related relation to that. Now, our U.S. national debt, we've had national debt since the beginning, since the inception. During the American Revolutionary War, our debt mounted to $75 million. That was of January 1st, 1791. And it continued to grow up until the Civil War. And then it started to shrink when the federal budget was cut and the federal government sold federally owned land. And then soon after that, there was a, a depression, again, growing the national debt up until the Civil War. And that increased the national debt, boomed to $2.7 billion at the conclusion of the Civil War, and steadily grew to $22 billion before World War I. But then you get all the way to today, and you have about a 30, roughly $33 trillion in national debt, and our GDP is about $26.2 trillion. So we're approaching the about 130% debt-to-GDP ratio, which we know is much higher uh, than we've ever experienced. Well, I don't want to say ever experienced. Really since post-World War II. That was the last period where debt-to-GDP was around these levels. Now, what happened after that? Well, the Federal Reserve embarked on yield curve control, kept interest rates low, allowed the government to spend more. Sound similar? Sound, sound similar to what we're doing today? Yeah. And we grew out of the debt. We only had 30% debt to GDP ratio by the early 80s. And that was because of inflation inflating that debt away persistently, consistently throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the early 80s. Now, how much interest will we pay on the U.S. debt here in, the, in 2023? It's projected to be $663 billion this year, double over the upcoming decade, though, soaring to $1.4 trillion by 2033. And that's really the big issue here is how will... The Treasury, the Fed, federal government, 
manage this. Now, we know they're not going to default nominally. They're not going to stop paying the debt. But persistent, consistent inflation is likely the path forward. Inflate defaulting in real terms. Okay, and that's typically how these things go and likely the path forward. All right, now let's pivot over to green energy. And the cost of green energy has been falling for years, but that trend is now reversing. Companies and utilities are paying more for green electricity. Solar components are getting harder to source. Panels are getting more expensive. A lot of it has to do with Chinese imports dropping dramatically. A lot of it has to do with the way China produces their panels, and that's with coal-fired power plants and makes the process of making panels a lot dirtier than I think most would like. And then most importantly is the financing costs have soared. Remember, these are highly capital-intensive upfront businesses or, or projects, shall we say. And that means there needs to be some financing, putting that money up front. And most of these green energy infrastructure companies, that's what they're doing. They're financing it and they're selling the power back to the grid. But what's happening now is they're seeing, they've signed contracts with utility companies and, and governments to sell power to the grid at a certain price. And they're starting to realize we can't do that. It's not economical anymore due to all these factors. And therefore, they're renegotiating their, their contracts. Now, the cost of large-scale large scale solar and wind power rose as much as 20% last year. And that's the most in the world. That's based on here in the U.S. And it's been particularly bad among renewable developers in the U.S. And the price they are charging long-term buyers for their electricity has doubled since the pandemic and up nearly 30% in the past year alone. Now, between 2010 and 2021, the cost of electricity produced by onshore wind facilities dropped 63% over those 11 years. Solar dropped 87%. So it's still relatively cheaper than most fossil fuel capex spending within the energy space. However, Depends on where you're at. Obviously, a solar farm in the Northeast is not going to perform as well as a solar farm in the deserts of Arizona. Same with wind. Some parts of the country, it's very windy. Others not. So what you're seeing here is costs are going up. As we've seen, deglobalization, more trade friction. That's a natural part of this inflationary environment that we're in. So what you're likely to see going forward is governments having to continue to subsidize and less places where these projects are going to make sense. All right, let's pivot over to Gene in North Carolina. Let's talk about debt GDP. Yes, Justin, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, you were just talking about the debt to GDP ratio. Mm -hmm. And I always heard that, you know, as this kind of the rule of thumb for how much P, how much a country may be in debt. 
Um, I'm wondering why is it the debt to GDP ratio? Why isn't it the debt to the amount of revenue that a country can can uh, can generate or, or taxes that they collect they can pay off the debt? Because doesn't the GDP also include the goods and services made by private companies, which is not money that the government has? Well, if that's money that is taxed, right? If, a comp- if companies are making money, then they're paying taxes to a degree. And there is typically a certain percentage, usually high teens, 18, 19%. Even if you change the tax code, et cetera, it's pretty much what the government collects uh, as a percentage of GDP. And so that's why it's generally used because uh, each from year to year, that can vary slightly, but over longer term, that's pretty much what uh, the government is taking in as a percentage of GDP. So that's why it's looking at that. Uh, th- there's a lot of different ratios you could look at, but that's a, a widely used one. And what happens when it gets up to these levels, typically the interest costs start to uh, drag on economic growth. And that's why it's obviously at a high level or a precarious level at the current time. Thanks for the call and great question. Now we're heading into our final break. Ready to take your questions now at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Let's go talk to Bill in Walnut Creek. He wants to talk about CD laddering as well as Monster Beverage. Yeah, hi, Justin. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, anytime. I have a cash position in a balanced portfolio that I have in a uh, money market and earning five. Point two or whatever, and I was just wondering your opinion on what to do with that cash. I was maybe just maybe doing a ladder, and if that were the recommendation, how far out would I go? Uh, I'm just talking about fifty thousand dollars, maybe taking four, you know, quartering that up, and maybe going out three, six, nine, twelve months, uh, or what would you recommend with that position? Yeah, I think that that makes makes sense. I might go out a, a little bit further than that. It all depends on your thoughts on when when rates will be cut, because that's where you would want to kind of have the 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 front end of that of that ladder. Okay, uh, because let's say rates are going to be cut a year from now, you don't want to be reinvesting those when the markets now sink in yields, right? So I think a year is fine. I would say we're probably roughly a year out uh, between um, a rate cut. It's hard to know. It's hard to know exactly. Obviously, we're in a generally secularly inflationary environment. But within that, you have economic cycles. And if the economy does weaken considerably next year, you could easily see a, a rate cut. So it's hard to know exactly when to, uh, you know, what, what the cadence is for, for that ladder. Uh, but going out a year probably does make sense uh, for 
to hedge kind of uh, that that bet going forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then you want to talk about Monster? Yeah, I was uh, uh, as a long term play to add to my uh, basket of stocks and you know, long term portfolio. Is just want to know your opinion. It looks it looks interesting. I just wanted to get your take. Well, I know it's been kind of in the I've seen headlines in the news. Oh yeah, the uh, uh, Monster's been the best performing stock over the last decade, and uh, I think it's definitely a great lesson that some of the most some of the best investments out there are not exciting names. So I like that. That is just a very simple business. <laughs> most of its sales come at local gas stations and and uh, liquor stores, et cetera. So it's it's certainly a good business. That's trading at pretty high multiples, and that's. I think pricing in that it is a very quality business, high margin. And the big question will be, will they stay the leader in the energy space? For example, we have Celsius, and that's a name that is also trading at high multiples, but it's growing a lot faster. It still remains uh, a lot smaller, but will it usurp Monster as the go-to energy drink? I think is the, the big question. That you, that's what you have to answer. Or can they both live in that environment and, and both do very well? That's certainly possible also. So it's a very good business. It's just trading at high multiples. And you have to be aware that if that growth or consistency of their business slows down, it would be hit dramatically. But if it remains solid for years to come, then it'll probably be a solid name to own. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's get into earnings, and we are about 90% through the earnings season with 90% of S&P 500 companies reporting results. 79% of them beat estimates. The five-year average is 77%. And the big, I think, tell or interesting snippet isn't that, you know, how a percentage of beat or, or disappointed that can vacillate. I mean, two percent different from the five-year average is nothing to write home about. But it's what the reaction the market is. And I say this all the time: if the stocks rally dramatically and earnings were good and it falls, that's a big tell that all the money is in. And companies that have beat earnings have only been up 0.5 percent on that news. The ten-year average is 1.6 percent. And if you've missed earnings, you've been punished much greater than normal. And that's why you've had the market really pull back, you know, about two and a half, three percent so far in the month of August. So this is another one of those slight tells that, hey, we're entering probably a more volatile part of the year. Not necessarily a bear market, a redux of the bear market, but uh, certainly an indication that, hey, things need to cool down and consolidate from here. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And follow us on our Invest Talk social platforms Instagram and YouTube. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. 
Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.